Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. How in tune with nature are you? Probably more than you think. We talk with Emily Murphy, author of the new garden book, Grow Now, about your NQ. That's your nature quotient. Plus, we talk with her about front yard gardening, the actual definition of full sun, and the special hands of a gardener. Do you have spots on the leaves of your annuals, perennials, trees, and shrubs? America's favorite retired horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, has some reassuring answers for one very worried gardener. The good news is, those spots you see just might be a natural development in early spring. Oh, by the way, welcome to spring! We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. And we'll hear more from the dogs later on. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in just a little over 30 minutes. Let's go. A few episodes back, we talked with author Emily Murphy. Her latest book, Grow Now, Going Beyond Organic, Rewilding Your Land, Sequestering Carbon, and Supporting Biodiversity. Grow Now, excellent book, excellent pictures, lots of very practical garden advice. In that previous episode with Emily, we talked about garden regeneration. What is regenerative gardening? Go back and listen to that in episode 175. Besides being an excellent garden author, she's a practiced plants person, a designer, an educator, and photographer. She also has a wonderful website and blog page called Pass the Pistol. And Pistol, by the way, is spelled P-I-S-T-I-L, PassThePistol.com. And she's the grandchild of immigrants whose livelihoods were tied closely to the land. And growing up in Northern California, Emily had the opportunity to learn the wonder of natural systems and growing from a very early age. In this episode with Emily, we talked about what's your nature quotient, a little quiz you can take. Also, we talked about what full sun is versus part sun, front yard gardening, and we talked about her hands. A lot of times when I'm introduced to somebody who says, yeah, I'm a gardener, I will say, let me see your hands. (laughs) And you, in your book, Grow Now, I don't know, I've lost count of the number of pictures of your hands in the book. And I just think it's wonderful because you're not afraid to get your hands dirty. You're not afraid to have dirt under your fingernails. You're not afraid to show the world my hands are the hands of a gardener. I am am not afraid. In fact, I think we were talking about my grandmother earlier. I think that's one of the things I loved about her most were her hands. And, And I remember as a kid, just thinking her, her hands were so beautiful and I love them so much. And I've taken so much pride. And as I age to, to start having hands like hers and part of that was, was working in the garden and, and I wear gloves occasionally, especially when I'm working with prickly things or, you know, things that could, that are abrasive, uh, like rose bushes. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't really have that many rose bushes, but there are some on the property I inherited, but really I just love being uh, close to soil. 
as a child, your home probably resembles more homes now in that you didn't have a lawn in your front yard. You had potatoes. <laughs> yeah. So when I wasn't with my grandmother, I lived in a college town in Northern California and it was, you know, neat city, city blocks. And here's my house, no lawn, potatoes. And, and that came from my father who his, his father um, was Portuguese. And that's what I guess Portuguese did when they moved into a new home, they planted potatoes. And I think it was one way to immediately have a food source, of course, and an abundant food source. There's a lot of potatoes are nutrient rich and, and calorically rich and an easy source of food. Uh, but it also helps work the soil immediately just by, you know, digging a hole for that uh, potato seed, the eye of the potato and plopping it in and then letting the roots of the plant do the work of really cultivating that soil and bringing it to life. And in this day and age, uh, front yard gardens, uh, food gardens are almost a necessity because of the increased shade from uh, taller surrounding buildings or trees as they get taller. And the only sun may be in the front yard. So why not turn that into a garden instead of a lawn? Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's becoming more common, especially in California. I think that there are still some issues in parts of the country where they haven't got the memo uh, that it's really cool to have a front yard garden. But you're right. A front yard garden, sometimes that is the only place to grow because your backyard might have shade or or maybe you know, might be limited on space or who, who knows what the circumstances are. Uh, the lovely thing about a front yard garden that I found is that it brings uh, the community together, at least for a moment. People ask questions. They want to know what you're working on, what you're growing. I don't currently have, I have a front yard garden, but I have a fence out there because I'm near a busy street, but I've had front yard gardens and I know people with them. And when I'm visiting, it's so much fun to be in the front yard, in the garden, and then just to be chatting to people as they walk by. And um, it's an easy way to share seeds and things you're growing and, and ideas and what you've learned as you grow. Now, your book, Grow Now, it gets into the practicalities of a lot of things we're discussing. And we, we use the term full sun. And you take that up on page 81 in your book uh, by asking the question, how much sun is full sun? And there are actual definitions of that, aren't there? There, there are actual definitions of full sun. Um, of course, there's nuances to anything. I, I like to say, know the rules so you can break them. Yeah. But, but um, full sun is what, eight hours of sun a day? Yeah, six to eight. Six to eight. Six to eight. And it doesn't have to be continuous. Uh, It can be it can be broken up. You know, you might have your your home, for instance, might cast a shadow in the middle of the day when the sun is at its peak. But you have plenty of sun in the first half and the second half of the day. The the second half of the day, the afternoon sun is the most intense. Uh, And sometimes um, if you just have sun from depending upon the season, of course, we have sun from noon to, to 8 p.m. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. is pretty great, too. Part shade is four to six hours and then or three to six. And then anything that's full shade is like three hours or less of, of sun. It's often morning sun. And there's just a difference in the intensity of sun from morning to afternoon, as I was mentioning. It, there's also a difference in placement of plants. One of the stories I tell in the book is of my friend Kat's garden and her garden. She has it in, the, in an unlikely place. It's between her house and the fence in a space that's maybe six feet wide. 
there's beds on either side and this path in the middle. Maybe it's a little wider than six feet because it has to be like a two two foot wide path. And the tomatoes grow on either side. But the side of the house that this garden is in is on the uh, east side of the house. And it only gets sun in the morning and maybe late in the day. And she grows the best tomatoes. She grows black crims and she's near the coast, uh, maybe a mile from the ocean where I lived uh, four or five blocks from her and was lucky to get some golds to grow, <laughs> lucky to get sweet 100s. And she had black crims and she didn't have full sun in the middle of the day, but it was really because she's trapping heat and she had radiant heat off of her home. And I'm sure there was also a lot of reflective light coming uh, and bouncing off of uh, the building and the fence to some degree. And boy, wow, her tomatoes are incredible. Exactly. Uh, one can find microclimates throughout one's yard. And sometimes those narrow areas, especially if it's against a south or a west facing wall, can be great to uh, help uh, plants stave off the effects of frost or freeze in fall, winter, and early spring, and also to grow things that uh, you could uh, put on a trellis, for example, to make them sort of two-dimensional instead of Mm -hmm. three-dimensional. Now, you mentioned the fact that uh, close to the ocean, you need as much heat as possible. In warmer areas in the valley, you need to think about, whoa, there's too much heat. And we're seeing a lot of problems now in backyard vegetable gardens and areas of the Central Valley here in California, and I'm sure elsewhere throughout the West, where the afternoon sun is just playing havoc with the gardens, causing all sorts of problems. And now more and more gardeners are are looking towards that part shade for their garden to stave off the effects of hot afternoon. So the part shade garden where you're getting morning sun and afternoon shade is almost turning out to be the ideal location for a lot of vegetables that we considered full sun. So that's the other thing about being a gardener. You got to roll with the punches and you've got to, you you got to uh, uh, adapt to uh, changes. You you have to increase, uh, as you put in your book, your nature quotient. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree. And on the, the, the full sun in the afternoon, I do the same thing. I, I strategically plant greens and certain plants where I know they'll get afternoon shade. And while I enjoy having a garden with more sun, because I no longer live quite as close to the coast, so I can grow plants like black crim tomatoes and, <laughs> and peppers, uh, I, I covet those areas that have afternoon shade for that very reason, because the afternoon sun can be so intense, especially inland. But yes, I think you're right. It's a great segue to nature quotient, because as gardeners, we're required on some level, some level to stay curious and ask questions. And your nature quotient, which is, uh, you can abbreviate it to your NQ, Uh, is part of that, whether you realize it or not. So we're all familiar with your IQ. Your IQ is your ability to reason. Your emotional quotient, your EQ, is your ability to collaborate and work with others, your understanding of others. Your nature quotient is um, your understanding of the natural world. And it doesn't necessarily mean you need to know the scientific names of every plant and animal or remember every fact in nature, such as, well, what is full sun? But to have a general understanding and to pay attention. And I I think that's actually one of the gifts of gardening is that it helps us pay attention, focus our attention and see things through a new lens or a particular lens of growing and 
working with nature to grow everything from tomatoes to cucumbers to native plants to support biodiversity. And, you know, your nature quotient is, is a big part of that. It's your lexicon for how you relate to the natural world and how you see yourself in it. And what I think is so important in our in our times today, knowing that monarch butterflies, Western monarchs in particular, while they had a, a rebound in their populations this last uh, November Thanksgiving count, their their numbers are uh, drastically low. They used to number in the millions in the 80s. And uh, last year they were they numbered less than 2000. It reminds us how important it is, you know, just hearing those statistics, how important our gardens are for supporting biodiversity. When we're more in tune with nature, I think we have inherently have the skills sort of through osmosis, as I was talking about earlier, to to buoy and support uh, nature and, and ourselves in the process, because uh, we need nature as much as, as as much as wildlife needs nature. Oh, definitely. And it's something we've been talking about on this show, that by encouraging the beneficials, and the pollinators to come to your yard, you need to build them the good bug hotels, those plants where they're going to live and raise their young, not necessarily the plants where they're going to be feeding on the bad bugs, but just homes for them that offer them protection and also perhaps another source of food. And uh, by encouraging those beneficial insects, especially, you can reduce to zero the amount of chemical pesticides that you need to use in your yard. You're basically, as you point out in your book, creating your own little ecosystem where it's uh, self-sufficient. Absolutely. And I, I, that's and that's the key words, ecosystem, ecology, and again, doing our best to mimic nature and how nature grows itself. And when we look in natural systems that are um, very uh, disturbed, very little or fairly intact, they're abundant with biodiversity of all kind, all, all kinds of bugs, good bugs, bad bugs. They're all rubbing shoulders and doing what they do. And, you know, the, the beneficial insects uh, need food. And a lot of those beneficial insects, if they're not pollinators, they're predators of, of those bad bugs. And we want them in our gardens and, and, and maybe those aphids are their food source. And at some point, if you're patient, uh, you can find a balance of ecology. I had this one a moment um, a couple of years ago where I was just sitting and in the garden, I had a deck garden at the time and looking at my calendula plants and I realized what are all those spots on them? Well, they were aphids. They're aphids all over my calendula. The first instinct for, for some people will be, oh no, my plants. I need to run in and get my, my insecticidal soap, which insecticidal soap has its role to play um, at certain times. And I have used it in the past, but in this instance, it's like, like, you know, I'm just going to watch and see what happens because everything looks fine to me. You know, the next day they were all gone. They just left. And it's like a reminder to pay attention, slow down and know that, okay, bad bugs might be coming into your garden, but they might not stay for long and you never know um, who might be there to eat them and watch and pay attention, see what happens. Well, the chances are you have a garden that is also filled with plants that attract ladybugs and lacewings who love to feed on aphids. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And hoverflies, too. Mm -hmm. uh, and growing that abundance of plants, that's where we can start. We can start with, well, there's two places to start. There's starting with soil care uh, and supporting soil ecology because an abundance of soil ecology and biodiversity in soil naturally supports biodiversity above ground. And we can drive that soil ecology 
through a number of factors. One of them is uh, planting a biodiverse range of plants. And we, when we grow a biodiverse range of plants, a diversity of plants, whether that's in your vegetable garden or in your landscape or the border along your walkway or the health strip between your, your front yard and your, and your street or your sidewalk in the street, uh, a biodiverse range of plants inherently then supports a biodiverse range of, of animals and uh, and microbes included. Uh, it's not just the above ground wildlife; it's it's the below ground wildlife that's also important because there's this fabulous push and pull, this um, feedback, or what I like to call sometimes a feed forward loop that happens between the soil and uh, all the organisms that live above ground. Emily Murphy, the author of the book Grow Now, has been with us. We've, we've covered a lot of topics, and there you can find more information in her latest book, Grow Now, available wherever you find your books. Emily, thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. Yeah, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied smart pot owners who have been using the same smart pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose smart pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate smart pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in smart pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of smart pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the smart pot. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com/fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit smartpots.com FRED for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. If you haven't shopped at your favorite independently owned nursery lately, well, you're missing out. Now arriving are Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites. It's great tasting and healthy fruit and nut varieties. They're already potted up and ready to be planted. We're talking about almonds, blackberries, blueberries, boysenberries, figs, grapes, hops, kiwi, mulberries, olives, pomegranates, and much more. Oh, you want more? Well, here you go. Your favorite Dave Wilson bare root deciduous fruit trees are arriving. Peaches, plums, cherries, including my favorite, the plum apricot cross, the pluot. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great tasting fruit and nut trees of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. 
Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you're going to find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. Hi, Farmer Fred. I just want to start off by saying how much I love your show and how much you've inspired me and given me the knowledge to start my very first garden in my very first home. I, my name is Sunny, and I live in Zone 9B in Brentwood, California. I've had a problem with red leaf spot on my Mexican primrose, which I have dug up um, since last winter. But via root system, it has spread little babies everywhere. And even the tiniest little leaves that sprout up eventually catch this red leaf spot. A couple of questions. How do I get rid of it? And do I need to worry about it around my other perennials? I have had a couple of um, my perennials catch this form of leaf spot as well. I tried copper fungicide and I'm considering just heavily mulching around the area. Please help. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sonny from Brentwood for that question. For those not from Northern California, Brentwood, California is sort of halfway between Oakland and Stockton. It's in the delta of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Rivers. It's a very windy place. And uh, it's a great place, actually, to garden. They have very good soil there. If you'd like to get in touch with us like Sonny did, I would suggest you use SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. It's the easy way to leave an audio question without making a phone call. Or you could phone us if you wanted to. That's fine. 916-292-8964. One nifty thing that uh, Sunny did besides uh, leave us the audio message at SpeakPipe, she also texted us pictures of mm-hmm. her problem at 916-292-8964. Uh, you can always send it via email as well. Fred at FarmerFred.com. Well, you heard her mm-hmm in the background there. That, of course, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there you go again. There she is, America's favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower. Yes, I'm here and I'm mm-hmm-ing because pictures are so helpful. Yes, they are. It helps to truly identify the plant. Sunny said it was a Mexican primrose. We wanted to make sure that indeed it was a Mexican primrose. It is a plant that I would politely describe as gregarious. Yeah, rambunctious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something that can be out of control. I also like to call it the prettiest weed I have. It is very beautiful. It's very sunny. It blooms yellow and it spreads quite quickly uh, from seed and possibly from the roots as well. But it is uh, a beautiful bloomer. Lovely to see. Lovely to have in the summer garden. Do you want to say again that it actually blooms pink? Uh, The ones I knew, if it's truly Mexican, I believe it'll bloom yellow. Huh. Now, the ones I have were pink. (laughs) There are many different evening primroses. And that's part of our problem is that, you know, common names like uh, Sonny used the term Mexican primrose can refer to more than one plant. So that's a, a technicality we don't have an answer for from what she sent us, exactly what that plant is. This is very correct, and it, chances are there could be many colors. Uh, I'm reading here in the Sunset National Garden book about the Mexican evening primrose, which, by the way, isn't a primrose at all. It's Onothera is the uh, genus. 
And it talks about the different colors. It's usually a rose pink bloom in the summer. Uh, the flowers open in daytime and the stems die back after bloom, but it spreads rapidly by underground stems and can invade other plantings. It likes full sun. There is a white flowered form known as Alba. There's Woodside White, which ages from white to pale pink. Siskiyou is an especially vigorous long blooming variety with two inch light pink blossoms. So it could be any number of colors. Right. And they don't talk about one that is native to us locally here in the Sacramento area of California and other parts of California, which is a different uh, species, Enothera elata. And then there's a variety, Hookeri, which is named after the founder, uh, whose last name was Hooker. And that is also a, a bloomer. And it blooms yellow at night. It wasn't named after T.J. Hooker, the TV show? <laughs> no, it, it, it existed before the TV show. Okay. The Mexican evening primrose, again, um, depending on which species you have, then could be any number of colors, but I think it all spreads the same way, and that's via roots. And by seed as well. Oh, well, isn't that delightful? Yes, that's one of the reasons it's such a rambunctious plant. The population I... I'm thinking of was the uh, Enothera elata hookeri, and it was on campus where I taught, and it was separated uh, by sidewalks. So there would be a population over on one side of the sidewalk and another population over on the other side. Now, roots can go under sidewalks. (laughs) (laughs) Roots of these uh, really rambunctious plants can go under sidewalks and come up on the other side. So I have no definitive proof that it was spread by seed, but that was my guess at the time. Yes, indeed. By the way, there are other versions of the evening primrose as well, which do indeed have uh, bright yellow flowers. So we know it's an evening primrose, but what you have in your yard could have come from who knows where. Right. It it actually has a very wide spread. It is uh, widespread throughout uh, California, Arizona, New Mexico, parts of Colorado, uh, West Texas, and it even gets into Tennessee and Kentucky. So it's a plant that gets around. It sure is. Yeah, you can find it in many, many gardens. And it may be... <laughs> okay, we'll wait. <laughs> Get in the mail. I know, I'm sure it's just a dog walking by out front. Oh, right. Yeah, that's so. Welcome. This is why we're in Barking Dog Studios. Right. And Fred forgot to close the door. Meanwhile... But that's not Sunny's problem. She doesn't complain about it. Well, actually, in a subsequent email, she does say, yeah, it does spread a lot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. Her problem, the, the purple or reddish spots on the leaves. Yes. That could be any number of reasons for that. Right. And the, the, the one that I hope it is for her sake is that some of the evening primroses just naturally have red spots on their young rosette leaves a rosette is uh, an arrangement of leaves where they're all in a circle and some plants like some of the primroses produce a rosette of leaves sometimes just for a whole year there are some plants that do that and sometimes just when they're very young in the spring and then they will send up a stalk with leaves on that stem and the flower at the top so some of the species of Enothera or evening primrose have red spots on those rosette leaves in the spring. So it's just natural. It's just natural. Okay. And the population I taught had them. Uh, they were not raised. They were not sunken. They were not hairy. They were not fuzzy. They were just a spot of color on the leaf. 
and it could be just a, a seasonal disorder as well. Yes, there we often see red in plants in the cooler weather. We like it in some plants. For instance, uh, flowering plum with red leaves. Some of the flowering plums have red leaves all year long. Some of them have red leaves only in the spring and then again in the fall when they lose their chlorophyll and go to get ready to drop their leaves for the winter. There are other plants that show red in the spring. Uh, if you put, put your tomatoes in a little too early, the soil's a little bit too cold, then they will show it's not a bright red, but the leaves will tinge toward red. And then as soon as it warms up, they'll get green again. And that redness is due to phosphorus not being brought, not being available to the roots of the plant. Phosphorus is often brought to the plants by microorganisms that live in the soil. And those microorganisms are active, more active when it's warm and less active when it's cool. So when the soil is cool, as it is in the spring, and the microorganisms are pretty lazy, then the, there isn't a lot of phosphorus available for the plant. And that shows up in the green parts as redness. I would think then that if your soil temperature is below 50 or 55 degrees, you would have that lack of activity in the soil. Mm -hmm. And if you purchase a soil th uh, thermometer, you can get a pretty good idea of where your soil is. It's, a, it's a one real good reason for planting in raised beds because the soil warms up faster in raised beds. Right, because it drains faster and it takes more heat to warm up water than it takes to warm up air. And so if there's lots of water in your gardening soil, it will take longer for that uh, soil to warm up than if it uh, is drained and has lots of air in it. If it's a phosphorus issue due to the cold temperatures in the soil, adding phosphorus will not solve it. Adding phosphorus will just build up salts in your soil and potentially lead to other problems. So all you have to do is wait, wait till it warms up and it will get better. And, and exactly. In a lot of situations, there, there's this uh, expression in the world of integrated pest management called abiotic disorders, which basically means it's probably your fault. Uh, <laughs> many fungi, according to the University of California IPM program, uh, cause leaf spots on a wide variety of plants. And the spots may vary from small, discrete dots and raised areas to irregular yellow or brown patches that cover much of the leaf surface. The leaves can fall off. Generally, they rarely cause long-term damage. Similar spots can be caused by bacterial pathogens, insects and mites, or abiotic factors on some plants. And their solution for it is very abiotic-oriented. A, just tolerate it. Infections can be tolerated. Remove fallen leaves and debris promptly. Many of the pathogens are favored by moisture, so avoid overhead sprinklers and irrigate early in the day so that the foliage dries more quickly. Generally, fungicide treatment is not warranted. You can create more problems by uh, applying fungicides than, than you fix. There are good funguses out there as well as bad funguses. And in the natural environment, they kind of keep each other under control. It's when we start messing with that environment that things can get tilted one way or the other, uh, and we can end up with infested plants. If leaves are falling off the plant, pick them up and get rid of them, mm -hmm. move them away. If there's been many leaves dropping under the plant and they are uh, rotting in place, you didn't pick them up in the past, then you could scrape away that mulch that, that 
has been created by or added to by those leaves and replace it with other mulch, making sure not to put the mulch up against the trunk of the plant. There is a conundrum facing many gardeners who have sprinklers on their lawns, and that's the case of these the sprinklers. When the wind blows, especially down in Brentwood, and you've got your sprinklers on, your plants are going to get very, very wet. Not just right. your lawn, but the surrounding plants that may be behind it. So right. if you still want to water a lawn and yet keep your ornamental plants that are adjacent to the lawn on the drier side. Now, of course, you could hook up a drip irrigation system for the ornamentals. Kind of hard to do on in a lawn situation. But you could swap out those old spray heads on your sprinklers for something a bit more modern, like the MP rotator heads that send out little fingers of water and there isn't as much spray. There isn't as much mist-like water flying around your yard. Right. The water isn't drifting because the droplets are a little bit bigger, they're a little bit heavier, and they don't uh, travel as far with the wind. Wind is generally, you really have to check out your own situation, but it's generally more wind in the afternoon than in the morning because parts of the earth have heated up and that hot air is rising and that creates wind. So think about the time of day, pay attention to when you find wind in your landscape and don't irrigate at that time. And then the other would be right plant, right place for those ornamentals around the lawn. Growing plants in sunny locations, having good circulation, perhaps by pruning off excess foliage, and of course, fertilizing properly. Uh, if you apply too much, especially of a nitrogen fertilizer, you get that lush foliage and that provides excellent conditions for fungal growth. Right, for fungal growth and for some insect attacks as well. The, that, that new growth is very thin. It hasn't takes a little bit of time to for the leaf to expand and then to put on its protective coatings. And those pests find those young leaves and attack. So, Sonny, really the bottom line is you could just live with the purple dots and enjoy them as uh, part of the scenery. I really enjoy the Mexican primrose in my neighbor's yard. Right. And there is a driveway separating her yard from my yard. And as long as it doesn't cross the driveway, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Mexican primrose, a pretty plant, but it's uh, rather gregarious, thuggish or whatever you want to call it. And if it's got purple spots, it may just be part of the plant. But uh, just in case, just rake up, get rid of uh, any sort of fallen debris and uh, turn off that overhead sprinkler. Debbie Flower, thank you so much for your help on the Mexican primrose question. You're welcome, Fred. You may have listened to our chat with Emily Murphy, author of the new garden book, Grow Now, when she talked about your NQ. That's your nature quotient, a measurement of how in tune with nature you just might be. The higher the NQ, the better the gardener you probably are. But we really didn't dig down to find out the specifics, such as what sort of questions you should ask yourself about your own NQ and ways you can improve your nature quotient. So that would make an excellent topic for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics. It's the free garden email newsletter that comes out every Friday. Take the quiz and find out easy ways to better connect with your natural surroundings. It's in the edition of the newsletter that comes out Friday, March 25th. So take a stroll through the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics. Find a link in the podcast show notes or at FarmerFred.com, or by going to Substack.com slash Garden Basics. 
Think of it as your garden resource that goes beyond the basics. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, and it's free. Please subscribe, share it with your gardening friends and family. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you for listening. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.